So hello, uh, my name is Milena Kalinowska and I'm Director of Public Programs and Education here at the Hirschhorn Museum. Today we are delighted to have with us Christian Markley, a major artist who over the past three decades has produced a remarkable variety of works, including his political resonant 14-minute video installation, Guitar Drag, from 2000, which is included in the Hirschhorns as part of the Damage Control Art and Destruction Since 1950 exhibition, which is on view until May 26. Today, Christian will be in conversation with Russell Ferguson, co-curator of the Damage Control Exhibition. Now I would like to also thank our generous sponsors of this evening program, Swiss Embassy and Swiss Arts Council pri Helvetia. Our gratitude also goes to UCLA professor and curator Russell Ferguson, who will be, as you know, in conversation with the artist. I also would like to extend my thanks to Kevin Hull, who makes programs like these run really smoothly, and Kerry Brower, chief curator and acting director, for his continued support. Now let me turn to this afternoon program. Christian Markley was born in San Rafael, California, raised in Geneva, Switzerland, and currently works and lives in New York and London. He studied at the Superior School of Visual Arts in Geneva, Boston, Massachusetts College of Art, and Cooper Union in New York. Over the past decades, Christian has produced a remarkable variety of works, exploring the convergence of sight and sound. His over spans a range of mediums, including performance, solo recordings, compilation, sculpture, photography, painting, video, and multimedia installation. Much of this work is based on ready-made images, objects, texts, and films. Christian has been selected to exhibit at the Whitney Biennale in 2000, sorry, 1991 and 2002, as well as numerous Venice Biennales over the past few decades. At 2011 Venice Biennale, he was awarded the Golden Lion for his 24-hour timepiece montage, The Clock, from 2010, a compilation of thousands of film extracts from every genre and period, which has been exhibited in numerous important venues around the globe. Other important exhibitions, just to mention, is 850 records at PS1 Contemporary Art Center Clock Tower, Strange Attractors, Science and Chaos at the New Museum of Contemporary Art, Art and Film Since 1945, Hall of Mirrors at LA, Mocha, and the Chicago Museum of Contemporary Art, Rose is a Rose is a Rose, Gender Performance in Photography at the New York Guggenheim Museum, Les Thames Viter at Centre Pompidou, Christian Mark Clay, The Sound of Christmas, at Tate Modern, and so on. He's one of the first artists to ever use vinyl record turntables as his instrument of choice. Christian was supremely influential in the genesis and evolution of today's DJ culture. Art and music are, for me, totally intertwined and connected part of the same thinking process, he has said, and this fusion has been a principal part of his artwork since the beginning of his practice. Christian is also concerned with silent representation of sound because he wants people to use their own memory. 
Memory is our own recording device, so that instead of imposing a standardized memory like a record, we have our own personal memories, which are more selective. Today he will be discussing his creative process and the thing that interests and inspires him as an artist. Before I welcome Christian, I would like to also introduce Russell Ferguson, UCLA professor and damage control co-curator. Russell joined the Department of Art at US UCLA in January 2007, was a chair until 2013. From 2001, he was deputy director for exhibitions and programs and chief curator at the Hammer Museum Los Angeles, where he remains an adjunct curator. From 1991 to 2001, he was at the Museum of Contemporary Art in LA. Russell has organized many exhibitions. At the Hama, these include the Undiscovered Country, solo exhibitions of Larry Johnson, Francis Alice, Wolfgang Tillmans, Patty Chang, and Christian Marclay. At the Museum of Contemporary Art, he organized In Memory of My Feelings, Frank O'Hara and American Art, as well as survey exhibitions of the works of Liz Lerner and Douglas Gordon. With Kerry Brower, he organized Open City, Street Photography since 1950 for the Museum of Modern Art in Oxford. Let us now welcome Christian Marclay and Russell Ferguson. Thank you. Hi, I'm Russell. This is Christian. Um, We're like on French TV things. Yeah. <laughs> um, thanks, everyone, for coming out on a rainy day. Um, Christian, uh, I think uh, probably the most uh, logical place to start is with guitar drag. That's the work that's in the exhibition here. Um, it's a very powerful piece, uh, and I hope everyone has had a chance to see it in the exhibition. Uh, can you tell us a little bit about the, you know, how you came to make that piece and the elements that you were thinking about uh, when you made it? it um, well, the, the piece is from uh, was was. Uh, edited or finished in 2000, uh, but it started um, um, a couple years before uh, when I heard of this horrific crime, uh, this lynching, killing of um, James Byrd, uh, an African-American um, who in Texas was dragged behind a pickup truck. And I remember I was flying uh, and I was flipping through some magazines there, on Flight magazine, and um, it was a, a Time magazine, and there was a picture, uh, you know, the, the best picture of the year or something, the 100 best pictures of the year, and they had the photograph and a little caption, and there was a picture of the back of a pickup truck with uh, a license plate, Texas, and just a very kind of generic looking photograph. But then when I read the caption, um, it was kind of, they put in a few words, uh, thoughts from the photographer explaining how he was assigned to go and document this, this crime and um, had nothing to photograph. And so that was his picture. It was the, the back of this pickup truck 
Um, and to me, it was such a powerful picture, you know, the combination of the caption and, and that image. And um, so, you know, thought about it. And then um, the following year, a couple years later, I don't know, I, I was invited to go to Art Pace in Texas, in San Antonio, Texas. Uh, on an artist residency there. And that's when I thought I could maybe make a piece uh, based on, on that, you know, because everybody over there was driving their pickup trucks. Um, and very often with like guns right behind them, like, uh, which seemed like so surreal. Uh, but anyway, so that, you know, it's always like a lot of different circumstances, element, influences, and then suddenly, you know, uh, you put things together. Of course, the guitar is a body, a solid body, uh, Stratocaster. Uh, there, there is all this anthropomorphic um, quality to this instrument, which is, uh, you know, has a neck, is often um, given a name, often the name of a woman, in fact, uh, by a lot of uh, guitar players. Um, and so, and, and of course, the, the, the references to rock and roll and the whole destruction of guitars that becomes sort of like a cliche of rock and roll. If, you, if you're a, a cool rocker, you have to destroy your guitar. <laughs> um, so does this kind of performative aspect demonstrative um, and uh, you know, other my my other influences are of course Fluxus and um, you know Nam June Peg had done a, a piece called Drag Dragging of Island or I forget what the title the exact title was in the 60s. He would walk around pulling this violin by a string like he was walking his dog. Um, so all these things make it that. In the end, it, it is, a, it, it is a, a, a very violent piece, uh, but it has very different readings. It, it's not just a piece about James Byrd. I think I didn't want to make a piece that was only about that. I think what makes that piece, um, you know, to me, what makes it interesting is that it, it has the potential for all these different readings. It's not just one thing. Yeah, I mean, it, it's got, on one level, the the brutal murder, so there you have a very direct reference to destruction and, indeed, murder. Um, yet, at the same time, the, the, the other element that you're describing, the kind of tradition that goes back to Jimi Hendrix or Pete Townsend of smashing up the guitar, is a highly valued gesture in the rock world and you know it's a symbol of their artistry in a way that they're so uh, orphically out of control that the guitar itself has to be sacrificed so for me one of the interesting things about the work is the way that it's mixing uh, positive and negative elements together in things that we value in the history of rock music and things that are so horrible they almost can't be represented and I think the the the, the question of what you can show and what you can't show is, is a very relevant one there. You couldn't make a work about this murder and show a body being dragged behind a pickup truck, but you found a way to both refer to it but not represent it at the same time. So 
yeah, there are a lot of different things that you have going on in the work. I mean, I've witnessed people walk out of there in tears while I've seen some teenagers like coming out like so energized and so happy. So that, you know, that difference, um, I think it, what, it, it is what makes it powerful, you know. Um, and, um, but it is a piece, it is a musical piece, so how do you make music while you're destroying something, you know? Do you consider uh, the sound that the guitar makes to be a musical work? Uh, yeah, actually, I, I've released it uh, on vinyl, so I, I made, I released the soundtrack, um, and um, so, which is, a, you know, I, I was, um, I had mixed feelings at first, like, doing it, but I think, uh, in a way, it kind of underlines the fact that it is a sound piece as well, and that it can be also just listened to, um, and that uh, you don't always need the visuals um, to go with it. Um. It's a very kind of immersive experience, you know, for the museum here, you know, we had to build soundproof walls because it's important to you, I know, that the sound be loud when you're in there, that it has to be a kind of almost difficult experience, well maybe not for teenagers but for other people, um, to be in this extremely loud in a way, cacophonous uh, environment, and you know, I was wondering. Yeah, I mean, how are you thinking about like how it's viewed? There, there's kind of a low ceiling in that room. You're kind of compressed. The image takes up the whole of one wall. The sound is extremely loud. You know, I, it, to me, it was important that you would you would kind of uh, lose your sense of balance almost because the image is very jerky, and um, you you uh, don't have so much reference uh, to to the space. So you, it it it's loud, aggressive, uh, sonically, but visually also it's it's this very chaotic. Um, so it is actually an, an, an uncomfortable um, position to be in. Um, and so that, to me, presentation in video is really important. Sound, uh, which is very often difficult in, in, a, in a museum context, especially in a group show, to share you know, a sonic space with others and not, um, you know, it, it's extremely hard to contain the sound. Um, and, uh, but uh, to me, you know, that's very important. It's, it's always difficult because uh, most museums, I mean, it's changing now, but when I, when I started showing videos and sound in museum context, it was very difficult because, you know, People, curators, um, are, are trained to know how to present things visually and uh, are not necessarily trained um, to have a good ear. Russell was a, a drummer at some point in his life, so has an interest in music. Therefore, um, you know, he, he understood the importance of, of the sound level. Um, yeah, I, I think it, it has to be, you know, border, borderline um, uncomfortable. Um, but again, that is such a subjective um, thing because, you know, if you go to a, a live rock concert, it can be extremely loud, and the louder it is, the more fun it is for some people we still have good ears <laughs> ready to be damaged but but there is an element where it it's in a way part of the work if people feel 
physically or psychically uncomfortable in the work. You you want to apply a certain yeah. I mean, pressure sound is, is, is very physical. You know, it it really kind of you can feel it. Uh, so it's very different experience than looking at a, a static sculpture or a painting. Um, there you you are aggressed in a way, and um, it's it's difficult. You know, and but. Here they managed to isolate all the different, you know, videos, um, and even though there's some bleed, but um, you know that's um, what sound. You know, that's one of the very difficult aspects of sound is how, how to contain it. Yeah. Um, Guitar drag is not the first uh, work of yours that's involved uh, destroying things, and uh, I, I think maybe we can also look back. Milena mentioned that you've been doing this for 30 years or more now, um, and not, not just destroying things. Well, <laughs> oh yeah, one or two other things as well. Um, but you know, I wondered if we could kind of go back to the beginning and talk about how you started to work, in in particular with records. Milena mentioned that you were one of the first, maybe the first person to use um, records and turntables as a musical instrument in its own right, that you would perform with uh, other musicians. But, you know, one of the key things, I think, from the beginning in your relationship to records was using damaged records or uh, altering themselves in ways that would be considered irreparable damage to people who just wanted to listen to the record. And, uh, you know, maybe we could go back to the beginnings of your work with records and talk about your relationship to the record as a um, as something that in a way becomes raw material for your work. Yeah, I think um, the, the records um, play a very important role in, in uh, you know, the my appreciation of damage in a way. Uh, records are uh, vinyl records, which, you know, it looks like most people in this audience know what they are. Uh, I still know. Um, they, um, they're very fragile, um, and they get damaged um, quickly. They, uh, they wear. And they end up producing all this damage, all this wear and tear um, ends up generating its own sound, um, hissing, you know, popping sounds from scratches on the record and dust and, um, and all these sounds were, you know, rejected from the audiophiles, uh, they didn't want that. Um, but it always surprised me how it, it's such, it, it signifies so much, it expressed so much the medium. It is a sound of that medium um, that instead of rejecting it, I ended up embracing it and saying, okay, well, these sounds uh, that were not intended by the performers or the, the, the artists who recorded these records uh, add another layer. Of, of information, and that kind of information is, is actually the passage of time, uh, the deterioration, the, the patina, and that patina has its own sound, and why not use it? So I, um, I would buy records uh, very cheaply in thrift stores, 
uh, and uh, they they became my my kind of library of pop culture. I grew up in Switzerland, where we didn't have thrift stores and where records were kind of veneered as these um, in Europe they were more kind of precious. While here I would walk into a thrift store and have thousands of records for 10 cents uh, and beautiful covers and interesting material to use. And so I started exploring um, making sounds with, with these records. And uh, the, the, the idea of embracing the uh, all the contingent things that come along with recorded sound uh, it seems to me to have some relationship to the the way uh, John Cage thought about sound um, in that uh, he was known as a composer, of course, but at the same time he wanted to include the sound of the world and so on. I, I remember once him telling me that uh, he didn't particularly like recorded music, even his own, and he didn't listen to it that much, but what he really enjoyed was walking down the street and hearing a record played inside in an apartment and the sound coming out and mixing with the street sounds and and everything else. There seems to be something in common with that way of thinking about recorded music. Yeah, it's, it's this idea that, you know, sound doesn't stop uh, somewhere and then the, the world's um, start somewhere else. Um, we, we've we all experience recording as as part of our environment. I mean, we try to isol isolate as much as we can with those earbuds, and and but but it never completely uh, obliterates the, our environment. So very much this idea, you know, uh, his his composition four thirty three, four minutes thirty three is is very much about that. It's it's just a duration, so it's time again, and during that time anything can happen. Um, and and that piece gives um, privilege privileges the the um, incidental accidental sound or you know of of the audience um, so you can cough we don't mind um, and um, but so so the, this this idea that but it's a little different I mean. The notion of damage um, is something that you know we we were trained to reject, uh, and you know we're always um, conditioned to uh, to like the new. Uh, uh, and the pristine and the perfect. And, I can and remember, I mean, the experience if you had a record that you really loved and you played it a lot, it might often get a scratch on it somewhere. And I think you would almost not hear the scratch after a while. You, you kind of edit it out. But then if you hear it in another recording and you don't get the scratch where you expected it, it feels it, that it's become wrong somehow, and you realize you've internalized the the scratch on the record that was your personal copy of it, so that the damage does become this kind of personal marker that without almost you even realizing it, it becomes part of the music for you. It, it, uh, you know, this... Um it, it is really like the, the trace of time. So like when I made my first record in 1985, um, I made a record that didn't have uh, a sleeve, a packaging, a, 
um, no no sleeve, no cover, nothing. So it was just like a one-sided record. Actually, I think I have some images. Um, Uh, well, we'll come back to that, but let me. Okay, this is this is my first record from 1985, so it it doesn't have a label, it doesn't have um, a sleeve, a cover, a jacket. So uh, when it left the pressing plant, uh, was distributed um, and uh, sold in shops. Um, you would get a damaged goods, I mean, a, a damaged record. And your copy became different than someone else's copy because it got damaged differently. So in a way, I was trying to uh, acknowledge um, or, or kind of fight this idea of the multiple that everybody got, you know, the same recording. Uh, yours got um, damaged differently. It sounded differently. It might be extremely damaged and then it would, um, you know, the needle would just slide across the surface of the record and last only a few seconds. Or it might skip and loop for a long time and, and last a lot longer than, uh, than someone else's record. And so the recording on it, I, I don't have any of the record, you know, I, I don't have sound bites for you today, but uh, all the sounds on this records were made with other records. So there are scratches that are part of the recording, pops and clicks, and even loops, skipping sounds. So you're never sure uh, that what you're hearing is the actual recording or uh, the damaged record. So are, am I hearing the recording or am I hearing the medium? Um, and that's what I, I was, you know, playing with, and and this, and and fighting the idea of of the, the the multiple, and giving it kind of a unique character, and allowing it to age, and to acknowledge that aging as part of the sound. Yeah, but, uh, but one other thing about this, I mean, in in some ways that concept is very simple and straightforward. But uh, I remember getting this record, and in a way, almost like guitar drag. There's there's a, an enormous psychological pressure on you when you own this. I mean, like you, I was, I grew up kind of treating my records very carefully and preciously because it was a big chunk of whatever money I had when I bought a record and I didn't like to play them at parties too much because I really wanted to keep them good. And uh, when I got your record without a cover, this piece, I, I wanted to be true to the spirit of the uh, work, so I didn't want to get a cover for it and kind of preserve it. I felt I had to just treat it as a record without a cover, but leaving it around without a cover or even sticking it in a stack of other records uh, for me was extremely psychologically difficult because I, I just couldn't stand seeing it, you know, potentially get scratched up. And I tell myself, oh, no, no, this is what's meant to happen. If it gets a scratch, it's okay. But, but there was still this element of uneasiness because even though the, simp the idea is quite simple and quite easy to explain, but in practice, you know, unless you're one of these people that treats all your records like that, and I have nothing to do with those people, um, the, um, 
It's difficult. There's a, there's a pressure because it's so against expectations. I think all my work with record uh, dealt with this this tension because uh, we were raised, you know, holding the records by the edges and not putting your fingers on it and you know caring for them, uh, but. Um, you know, the way I, in performance I would damage them and I would, I would be very abusive with them. So people had strong reactions to it. Today, um, you know, records are kind of obsolete. I mean, the DJ culture keeps them alive. They're kind of interesting retro objects. They're a way in this digital age to keep um, something more tangible. Uh, to, to have uh, an object rather than just uh, data on a disk or on a, on a computer. Um, and so they still, uh, you know, there's, there's, I don't know, yesterday I, w I was at the Whitney Bino. I've never seen so many records in, in that, you know, in a show. And it's like we're in the 21st century. So it's really interesting. Um, but. Yeah, so, I mean, to get back to, to the actual record, I, I, I just want to uh, mention that on the, on the B side, uh, and st replacing the label, because also replacing the packaging, because there was no packaging, I, I had the title, and the title is Record Without a Cover, so that's pretty clear. And then there was, it, it says, um, and you can't, I don't think it's legible there, but it says, do not store in a protective packaging. Uh, and then it has, you know, the speed that it should be played at and, and the, the traditional credits of where it was recorded and who was involved, etc. Um, so it's a one-sided record. Um, but, um, and then, like, like there's, at the end, there's a lock groove also. So there's, there's all these elements that, you know, create that, that tension uh, that you were talking about, you know, and how do you handle this? And some people uh, that I know who are obsessive collectors bought two copies, one that they put <laughs> carefully sealed for eternity, yeah. eternity, put away, and then another copy that uh, David Toop had a copy where his cat would sleep on because he had it he had it uh, near the window and because it's black it attracts the heat and the cat felt like that surface was a little warmer than elsewhere and would sleep on it um, so that I thought that was a great use of yeah. the record um, but but maybe even more traumatic than getting record without a cover was watching some of your performances uh, where records would be, uh, um, you know, treated, I mean, here you can see that you have drumsticks and you're you're kind of beating on the turntable and the you know, the records were subject, subject to a lot of uh, Rough treatment, and then yeah, well. and then the records as well. Yeah, um, and you also had this. This thing, was a yeah. kind of interesting. Now we were talking about guitar drag, yeah. um, and my interest in guitars, having never been a, a guitar player, um, but I, you know, it. There was there was in in uh, in the 80s there was a moment when um, turntables were outselling guitars, which was like a interesting moment. <laughs> and and uh, kids wanted turntables; they didn't want guitars. Uh, I think that's changed now. Um, I don't know what they want. Maybe just uh, computers, laptops. But I. 
it was for me a way to kind of uh, bring this uh, physicality and instrumentality to to this mechanical object. Uh, the the record. I mean, you know, it's it's it, it is very mechanical, and. Um, in the early 80s, like 82, I think this dates from 82, I um, was invited to do a performance. Now, it, was, it started with uh, Yoshiko Chuma, um, a uh, dancer choreographer in New York, who um, asked me to make some music for her. And so, uh, but I wanted to be part of, of the performance rather than just being kind of a DJ in the background or uh, just providing a recording. And so this allowed me to play the records but to be part of, of the performance and she would like bump into me and push me uh, and make the the you know the record skip um, in this particular instance the 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 turntable had a um, it was one of those consoles where you had a radio uh, on it and I also uh, taped on it a little cassette player uh, and I had a little mixer at the top that was kind of like the the, the arm of my phono guitar uh, and um, so this allowed me to kind of uh, go through through the motions uh, of Jimi Hendrix. So then I, I did a performance that was sort of an homage to Jimi Hendrix, where I would play only his records on this turntable and and kind of mimic the gestural and and kind of embody uh, this performer through this recording. So that people reacted very strongly to this because I was really destroying the record. And I remember clearly after a performance, some guy came up to me and he was so impressed because I, I had destroyed this um, yellow vinyl recording, a bootleg of Hendrix um, that was supposedly at the time worth a lot of money. And um, so <laughs> uh, people really kind of related to that um, you know uh, that collector's mentality, and and you know this was pre-digital. You have to you have to go back to you know thinking how these records were the main uh, medium through which we we listened to recorded music. You know it was just a time when cassettes were there, just appearing and threatening the music industry. Well, they were blind; <laughs> they didn't know what was coming. Uh, <laughs> Um, maybe we should look at uh, record players too, which is we have some footage of uh, performance from uh, 1985. 1984. For, for uh, it, it was yeah, 84. Um, yeah. A, a video which I did uh, as a live performance uh, two years before that at the kitchen in New York, where I assembled a group of people and directed them uh, to use records as uh, acoustic sound objects. So instead of playing the records through um, a, a turntable, uh, they were used, as you're going to see now. Uh, can we get the video rolling? Thank you. So, I mean, Christian, the, you know, the records are clearly being damaged in a sense throughout that, but they kind of climactically are all broken at the end. When you're composing, let's say, of this piece, did, were you, was it important that they end with the complete destruction, the snapping in half of all the records? 
Yeah, but they're still making sounds when you when we're walking on top of them. Yeah, so even so the wrecking of them yeah, is not the end. I mean, the trampling on them is. You know, I was trying to find all the sounds that I could produce with. Uh, you know, without using the turntable, um, mm -hmm. and you know, they're they're interesting objects, and to kind of release. I mean, I always felt like the sound in the record uh, is dead. You know, and uh, this was a way for me to uh, liberate the sound um, and 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 to make something live. You know, uh, so most of my performances. Our uh, live performances are very, actually, very few documents and recordings of these performances that I, I made all, all through the 80s. I mean, I really believe that, that you know the, the the main purpose of music is to get people together, and there's there's a very communal uh, aspect to music, and that that's you know it, it's an interesting to think about that today, especially with digital recordings where music becomes uh, a lot more private and you know, uh, personal, rather than being a live, uh, shared experience with with a group of people. Um, and leading on from that work, I mean, maybe we could also talk about footsteps, which also engage the audience in a in a pretty direct way with the material, and again, in a way that is really, you know, in conventional terms, damaging the the record itself. Um, yeah, I mean, the piece started. Um, this, this this work actually has different aspects to it. Um, but I'll, I'll talk about this before I, I talk about footsteps. Uh, this was at the Clock Tower in New York, and um, I think '87 maybe. Uh, and as I said, it was you could buy records very cheaply at the time, and uh, so I I. I um, covered the floor with these records and invited people to walk on them. So again, you know, at this time, the, the idea of walking on a record, there was nothing, nothing more sacrilegious in a way. Um, and uh, of course, this was a silent installation, so you, you couldn't hear the recording or anything. It's just you heard your footsteps on it. And it was very much about this strange sensation of walking on all these hours of recording, all this kind of work. Um, and to, to knowingly damaging the surface. Um, and so eventually that led me to, um, I did this several times in different, different um, configuration. But then in 89, I did this piece called Footsteps. Um, so. I like the idea of, of making a, a record uh, for uh, a very specific use, for an installation. So I had this recording pressed. It's a one-sided record. Uh, the B-side is blank, and then uh, some. Uh, it was glued to the floor with double-sided tape. Um, installed at the Shedhalle in Zurich, and um, people were invited 
uh, to walk over the surface uh, of this uh, installation. And actually, they were they had to walk through it to go to uh, another gallery with other other works were installed. So there was um, an incentive to to you know I wanted really people to to. Uh, walk on these records, which at, at first they were reluctant to do. Um, so over a period of a month, they really got, you know, scuffed up and covered in dust and scratch. Uh, but there was no sound to be heard except your own footsteps. And then the label uh, had uh, this, uh, just, you know, my name, uh, the title of the, the piece was called Footsteps, a date, publisher, and that's it. And only after the show was uh, done and over, we, we lifted all these records, packaged them in a box, and then made them available uh, for, for people to buy. So only then could one listen to these records, these damaged records. And the recording is a recording of myself walking in my studio, uh, just recording footsteps, and um, then I mixed in uh, little snippets once in a while of a tap dancer. And so now, if you, you know, imagine you're putting down the needle on this record, it's clicking and popping, and it sounds very much like footsteps. So you got this interesting mixture between the recorded footsteps and then the damage. Uh, the scratches from the visitors. Again, this your copy is going to be different from someone else's copy. They all are damaged differently, and everybody has a unique recording that documents uh, the installation. Uh, it also came with a poster like this uh, in the box, and. Um, so it, it it's a different type of, of document, and and it's also it's it's a, it's a work that really um, celebrates the damage of the record and turns it into into music into a rhythmic you know a, a random rhythmic piece. So again, we have this back and forth between something that's apparently destructive, but you have shaped it in a way that it's actually. Um, constructive we could say in that you know the, the the result of all this damage all this activity that people are actually quite reluctant to do to walk on the records in this case produces something that's actually a new object and a, a new entity that has its own uh, presence as as new creation out of the process of destruction and I think that's an idea that we see coming up repeatedly in the exhibition in different ways from different artists. And to, and to make a different type of music with these recordings that are meant to be documents of a piece of music. And, and what I'm doing with, with the records is more uh, really um, using them as, as creative tools to create a, a unique kind of record music. Um, it's, it's not about the pure document of something else. It's not, there, there isn't so much that separation between uh, the two. Your, your record um, might still evolve and change with time. Um, strangely, what would happen with this one is that by, by playing it, you were actually cleaning it because <laughs> you were kind of uh, lifting all the dust. Um, Perhaps we could talk about this work too, Tape Follow, so from the late 80s. 
because it's uh, it doesn't use records, uh, but it does use recording and. Um, uh, basically, uh, the well, Christian, you could describe the work, but um, well, it, there's a, a reel-to-reel tape player again, analog, uh, old-fashioned, uh, but still uh, relevant at the time I did it. Um, but but right, I mean, it's interesting that I, you know a lot of times. Um, <laughs> I think artists become interested in certain medium that are just about to die. Uh, I feel like there's maybe enough distance from, uh, you know, a, a, a medium uh, that we feel like it's almost over. What else can we do with it? Uh, you know, a, a lot of. Um, you know, records, I mean, records since the 80s, I've had like several comebacks. Um, but, you know, it's it's not um, the, 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 the most popular technology in the world. Um, tape is also the same way. I mean, this piece is, is kind of difficult now because it's very hard to find the material. Uh, very few people make tape uh, anymore. And so what you see here is um, there's a reel uh, playing at, at um, three and three quarters speed, which is a slow speed. Uh, and as it's unwinding, instead of, of being picked up by a second wheel, there, there is none. Uh, so the tape falls and accumulates on the floor. Now, what you see on the floor is is just the way it has accumulated over a long period of time, like a month or two, maybe two months. Um, every two hours, someone has to go up there, put a new reel, and it plays. But there is a recording on on the the tape. It's the sound of water, of trickling, a fine uh, dripping trickling of water. So uh, you, you're hearing this sound, and it unwinds and accumulates on the f on the floor. The bell shape is purely um, mechanical. Uh, it's just the way the, the tape unwinds, and gravity takes it and and makes this beautiful uh, shape. So, you but, know. but you know, in in this piece, the you know, there's something very poignant for me about the the sound you 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 hear it once, and and then you're never going to hear it again because this tape can never be rewound after it's down there. So, in some ways, it's like the the the, the classical idiom of you can never step into the same river twice because once you hear that sound, you're never going to hear that particular recording again. So in some ways, this piece is one of the most kind of extravagant you know, destructions of material in all your work because hour after hour, day after day, the the audio is essentially being lost to audibility. Yet at the same time, uh, we return to this idea that we talked about, about things coming out of destruction. There is this kind of pyramidal structure developing and growing on the ground that's the residue of the destruction of the audio recording. So for me, in a way, this piece very concisely has both elements of 
the process is like you, you're sacrificing the tape, but the tape itself as you said, through the force of gravity, is making something else that has, a, in fact, a very strong physical presence. It is a, a sculpture, it's a sound piece, but it's also a performative a performance because someone has to go there every two hours and physically put a new tape. And, and to me, these, these different aspects of the piece are important. And, um, um, you know, because people actually watch it, you know, it, it is, it has a duration and, and uh, it evolves over time. You saw it, this was installed, the hammer, when Russell organized uh, my survey there. And um, so he saw it grow, and it was in a beautiful kind of, wasn't this an old chapel or something? Uh, it, it, it had a, the gallery that you can see here at the hammer has a, chapel-like shape because it was originally built by Armand Hammer to house his Leonardo Codex. And so it has, it's meant to have a kind of chapel quality, which gave a, a nice acoustic, resonant yeah, acoustic, acoustic effect acoustic. with the burbling water. It was the uh, only work in the room. And, um, you know, but of course, uh, you know, the, the performative aspect of it is, is subtle, but it was a, you know, took a lot of time to figure out what kind of ladder would it be okay for people to climb up. It had to have handrails on both sides. Well, that was because of earthquakes. Yeah, there are seismic issues and also was it okay to have the security guards climb up and put that on or did it need to be a dedicated person all day long who would do it and you know so a lot of kind of hidden performative and quasi-performative elements resulted in this physical form. But the, the essence of the piece could not be simpler in a way. You hear this burbling sound, you see the tape fall, you see it mount up, and it's actually quite a hypnotic piece. You think you can go in and see it quite quickly, but I, I know I spent a lot of time in there, and a lot of people did, just watching and that tape falling and listening. It was very meditative last. also. I remember when I first yeah. did it at, at the New Museum, Staff would would go there and, and have their lunch in that room. Um, how was that possible, though? Well, in those days, it wasn't quite as uh, weird, strict yeah. as it probably is now. But they were. Maybe it was just a lunch break. Maybe they didn't eat anything, but... Well, there is definitely something very hypnotic about this piece in, in a way that, you know, people so often have said about your later work, The Clock, that they think they'll go in for 10 or 15 minutes to watch it, and three hours later, they're still there. And in a way, that's prefigured in this piece because they're... Well, this is the hourglass version yeah, of The Clock. Very much so, yeah. <laughs> but there's, there is also something so... Um, poignant for me about that, that, that last moment of recorded sound. The, the, the trickling sound was just perfectly, I mean in theory you could have had any audio on the, on the tape, but the, the choice of uh, kind of trickling water that you know, suggested of course some kind of waterfall or falling water to, um, to, to echo the physical it has shape. A, the tape has a shiny quality, mm -hmm. it has a very watery, I mean it was very hypnotic to see how the tape would, would um, have, you know, find its own path. Um, you know, as it was falling down, and and I mean, I didn't know 
I thought it was just going to, you know, fill up the space. I didn't know what was going to happen the first time I did it. And it was like a great surprise to see that it has such a formal quality. Um, and, you know, I mean, I'm saying, you know, the, the hourglass kiddingly, but, but it, it is um, very much, you know, about that as well. Um, Christian, um, I also wanted to ask you about your work in the context of the show. Obviously, because of the very loud audio, yours is in a kind of, uh, in a way, sealed off uh, area. Um, do you see resonance between guitar drag and other works which are obviously so varied in the exhibition that's upstairs? I mean, when you look at your work in this context of the ways that artists have used destruction, do you feel particularly sympathetic to other works in the exhibition? Um, no, Russell. <laughs> no. I knew you might say that, but... Uh, no, no. I, of course, um, you know, but I think every uh, creative act involves destruction. It's a weird thing. Uh, I mean, just... Uh, Picasso actually said, you know, in, in making a painting, you know, every, every painting he made was also an act of destruction, and that's both in terms of destroying the pristine canvas by your action on it, but also in terms of your relationship to every other work of art that has come before the one you're making. That too, but but also just physically, material, the materiality of, of, you know, if you're carving something, you're like, you know, you're, you're destroying a form to create another one. If you, you're drawing or painting, uh, whatever we make always involves, you know, destruction if you kind of, you know, look at, at the big picture. Um, so to me, it feels like a, a, a normal thing as an artist. I mean, I, I tend to work a lot with this idea of collage, of putting pre-existing things together. So that always involves uh, breaking apart something else, cutting apart something else, taking fragments from different sources, and, and um, doing something new and different with with these things that still have um, a strong reference uh, and are charged where with our own kind of memory of these these things so it's been very striking to me in talking about this show that um, while some people find the idea of an art exhibition devoted to destruction or the theme of destruction kind of counterintuitive or, you know, even offensive to some people. Uh, that's not been the case at all among artists. It, it really uh, has struck me that, uh, in general, as soon as, you, as soon as I told people the theme of the show, they understood immediately why that was uh, a potential concept or an interesting way of looking at art, because so many of them, even people that you wouldn't automatically think their work had a lot to do with destruction, understood that fundamental idea that all creative work is also an act of destruction. I mean, uh, yeah, everybody in the show um, has that 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 you know every work comes out from something that is is not necessarily the destruction in the work but um, a reaction 
to uh, a conformity, uh, something that needs an accident to break away from it. So, like the notion of accident, um, you know, is not always destructive, um, but it's like that maybe that little mistake that you make uh, that is not controlled and suddenly um, it, it reveals something that you n never thought about, you know. And for an artist, th those moments are, are magical, you know. When, when something happens uh, that you hadn't thought about or that you hadn't predicted, uh, you know, I always think when, I, when I'm making something new, I mean, it doesn't matter how many notes you take and, 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 and little doodles and, and you try to, you know, think of every, every aspect of the work. Until you do it, um, you never know where it's going to go because the, you know, the process itself always generates uh, the most, you know, important aspect of it, you know. So it's, it's again, very Cajun, you know, this idea that, that chance, the accident, um, it, it can be so powerful. Yeah, and uh, it's one reason why the exhibition, Carrie and I called it uh, damage control. I mean, obviously it has a colloquial meaning that's particularly relevant in Washington, but uh, the, um, you know, but it's also about precisely that. There's damage and then there's control and they're not completely separate. One feeds into the other and back again. And I think you can see that throughout the exhibition. Well, the damage opens up, you know, mm -hmm. um, possibilities, you know. It's, it's, uh, it's always revealing, I think. Not in politics, but... Uh, um, Great. You know, maybe we should uh, go ahead and uh, take some questions, if people have questions for uh, Christian. Uh, um, and do we have a microphone? Yeah, there's someone in the front row here. Uh, do you think it would be worthwhile at a high level to compare and contrast the uh, world of the musical avant-garde that you gained some prominence in in the 80s versus um, the more visually oriented art world that you've gained arguably much larger prominence in recent years, or do you view it all as a continuum? I know your work has has been in both all along, but but the more business-oriented sides or uh, or social aspects of those two two. You aspects. said business and social. Business? Well, I mean, <laughs> versus your own work, uh -huh. but versus the, the the prominence, like, you know, you're probably more famous for the clock than you are for your album records or record without a cover, um, right. depending on, like, the how many people know about it. But I think record without a cover is more important than a clock. <laughs> oh, yeah, but, but maybe Personally. not so prominent in, in how yeah. many Yeah, but that has nothing to do, you know, like how, I mean... But I've always been in these two worlds, uh, and and I I just um, you know sometimes I'm more active in one than the other, and uh, you know and, and 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 actually in in a way there are people who know you in a music context that barely know you're a visual artist, and uh, I mean it was it was very striking when we. Um, did the the show in Los Angeles, and we, I think we went 
uh, to a record store and uh, with Lee Ronaldo, I think, and th there was a, a whole audience that came there that knew you entirely through music and and they were like, oh, and there's some kind of art exhibition as well. And so the context alters the, uh, um, you know, how people see who you are or what you do, I think. Oh, yeah, I mean, absolutely. You can't control that, that aspect, but uh, yeah, I think, I mean, I like it when there's some crossover and, you know, the music people get interested in the art and the art crowd gets interested in the music. That's the ideal, but, um, you know, I, it's not something I control necessarily. Okay, we have a question down there. Why do you the broken is more important than the top? I just saw the top in Bilbao and I thought it was absolutely brilliant. Um, I'm not saying it's a, a bad piece. <laughs> uh, it is. It is good. Uh, but but I'm saying you know in my development um, I think record without a cover is is like a key piece, but it's not you know it doesn't have this um, um, uh, you know it's it, it's a harder piece to to experience because you you have to have a copy in your hand you have to live with it you have to you know um, interact with it it's very different. Uh, but I would say, you know, maybe to create a, a link between those two pieces, that uh, the clock is is also a very, um, very much a, a participatory piece because you, your life become intertwined with this this clock, this machine, and your schedule becomes part of it. Uh, your you're living it in real time with with the artwork, and uh, that tension is is what uh, makes the record without a cover and a clock kind of, you know. Has the clock been shown in Washington, or are you planning to bring it here? Uh, no, there's no plans to bring it here, but it's been shown like a little bit everywhere. Uh, yeah, but not yet in Washington. Uh, another one here. Hi, I have a practical question. What happens to this piece once it's done? Um, it, it gets, um, you know, thrown away. Or actually, I did. Uh, you bottled I, some of I it. I did yeah. bottled some of that water. Uh, I did addition for the, the the new museum after the first installation. I uh, I bottled it and sold it as an addition for for the new museum. But in other venues, it just gets thrown away. Yeah. It, it's really impossible to roll it up again. And so. <laughs> but that's part, that's part of your attention, right? It's part of that Yeah, I mean, you know, it's, it's just a temporary piece. Um, it's like a performance, really. It just happens for a while, and then it's gone. Oh, kind of continuing with that, what what's the... Do you define how long the piece can be exhibited, or do you have guidelines, or like how how long can it stay up? And also, are the reels identical, 
or are they unique? I mean, is it all the same? Like, I don't know how long a reel lasts. Let's say it lasts an hour. Is it? No, it's, two, it's a two-hour uh, recording, and uh, yeah, it's it's the same recording for practical reason. You know, it gets dubbed, um, and. Um, so, um, but there's no, uh, you know, it, it, the, the duration uh, is is based on how long the exhibition is going to last uh, and uh, w what the budget is because it costs to make these these tapes. It used to be cheap. It used to cost five dollars an hour to run the machine, you know, with everything. Uh, not including the guards, <laughs> and, but yeah, you know, but just just the tape, um, and uh, you know, today it's probably a lot more expensive because uh, it's really hard to get that that material. Uh, so, you know, there's also an interesting quality uh, about the work is that eventually, you know, because it's mechanical and it relies on a old-fashioned machine and, and an old-fashioned medium, eventually it's going to be obsolete and, you know, it will stop existing. I haven't shown this piece in quite a while because it is, it is difficult. Um, yeah, right in the middle. Hello, thank you for coming and thank you for your artwork. Um, my introduction to your artwork was coming to a survey show uh, that was here at the Hirshhorn, uh, maybe in late 80s, 88 or 89, and I was just curious to know if you had any recollections. Yeah, actually, from that, that piece was installed here in, at the Hirshhorn. I, yeah, you're right. I yeah. forgot about that. Yeah, I came uh, not expecting to see your, your show and um, was very surprised by it and very excited by it. So. Yeah, it was a nice installation, and uh, what that series called the project project room. Amada Cruz or uh, curated the show. Uh, connections, directions. Sorry, and um, uh, that every museum has a connections or directions or. And what year was that? That was 87, 80, 89. Um. That's right, yeah, I forgot. Um, Go ahead. I'm very curious as to what you're working on now. I'm just, you know, just in general, could you give us a hint as to what's, you know, what Christian Marclay is doing now? Oh, uh, I don't like to talk about work until it's done uh, because I might change my mind. Uh, and, uh, yeah, but I'm working towards a, a gallery show in London for uh, January 2015, among other things. But that's, that's my main preoccupation. In the front row, Ingrid? Uh, yeah, take, take the microphone and everyone can hear. Um, so, Christian, you um, said how, for you, music is essentially about bringing people together. And I think about traditionally visual art is about the more the earbud experience, you and private contemplation with the object. Can you talk about how you use that tension in your work? The bringing together and the private contemplation? <laughs> mm -hmm. 
Well, I think you know that that has to do with the context. I mean, if you're if you're exhibiting, um, you know. Uh, in, in a gallery, in a museum, it tends to be more contemplative um, and, uh, you know, performance, live performance uh, brings people together and there's this kind of shared experience, communal experience. But I've tried to cross these, these, these borders and, and um, well, like just the show which I did at the ICA in Philadelphia, uh, which I, I there was acting as a curator. Uh, so I brought a lot of individual pieces, uh, sound producing pieces, uh, acoustic sound pieces that didn't require recording and um, basically created an environment, um, a almost a, a sound composition out of other artists' work that would uh, be triggered by motion detectors or by timers so that it was never quite the same. Uh, every time you went there, there were different people interacting differently with the objects, so creating a different type of sound relationship between all these parts. And um, so that, you know, involved the audience um, and um, Uh, maybe we can turn that off. Uh, I don't know. Um, how, how active are you now, Christian, in you know your what you've done for many years, improvised musical performance with other musicians? Uh, um, for many years, that was kind of something that was an almost non-stop activity. How actively are you pursuing that these days? Well, I, I don't perform with records as much as I used to. Uh, far from that, I, I actually uh, don't perform that much with records anymore because um, I find them sort of irrelevant today. They, they don't have the same impact. Um, you know, if I scratch a record today, I'm not going to get the same kind of reaction I used to uh, because people don't have that everyday you know, uh, experience of the record. But at the same time, over the years, I've developed these skills as a DJ that, um, you know, it's kind of, I like, that's the only way I can perform live music because I don't play any other instrument. So uh, I still do it once in a while, like uh, in a few weeks I'm going to do something in London with uh, Ok Young Lee, uh, a, a cello player, uh, improviser, who I played with a lot and you know I enjoyed doing it very much and I enjoy like the the immediate quality of that, where you're just performing, you're making sounds, you're making mistakes, a lot of accidents, and you're reacting to that, and you never know where you're going to end up. That is, is you know, great and satisfying um, because it's instant. It's not like when you're working on the clock where, you know, it takes three years of hard work and until it's finally done. So so music is, is more instant. Um, instantaneous and so I enjoy that the much but I you know to go back to Ingrid's question like the, you know how do I get um, to uh, create uh, situations in which music can happen um, and I've when I had my show at the Whitney Museum a couple years ago or three years ago now I don't know uh, I um, 
I, I created a lot of uh, graphic scores, video scores, different, uh, invented different ways uh, for musicians to, to, to create music. So it's mostly improvised music, but they're reacting to a structure or to objects or to uh, video projections or to photographs um, that I provide them. So they're like scores in a way, but um, very open scores. And um, so I'm less involved in the process. I'm kind of more, uh, you know, providing a structure for uh, music to happen rather than myself performing. Um, Am I allowed to ask? Yes, you can ask another question. Go ahead. Question about the clock. <laughs> okay. uh, I, I see on the program that uh, the Swiss uh, embassy is sponsoring this, this program. This being Washington, is that some kind of super PAC uh, arrangement? And uh, you were growing up in Switzerland. Is, uh, was the clock a commissioned work, or how did you come to make that? No, I mean, uh, thank you for the Swiss Embassy to uh, uh, <laughs> helping with this event today. But uh, no, the clock was not a commission. Uh, I. I um, you know, just uh, made it uh, with the support of my galleries. And um, uh, yes, I grew up in Switzerland. I'm half Swiss. Um, and um, uh, now my father was not a, a, a clockmaker. <laughs> <laughs> and we won't be awaiting the uh, body of work devoted to Swiss cheese either, yeah. I suppose. <laughs> Yeah, but you did uh, earlier. We were we were talking in a how um, there's a lot of Swiss artists. Tingley, yeah, Jean Tingley and Pipilotti Rist in the exhibition also Swiss artists. Uh, is there something about the famous reputation of the Swiss as very orderly and law-abiding people that makes some of them want to lash Break out? Break away? <laughs> Maybe. <laughs> um, yeah, I don't know. Uh, but Tingley was always, uh, it was one of my first, uh, you know, strong experience with, with, with art uh, as, a, as a child. Seeing these mechanical sculpture making a lot of noise and uh, that was uh, a strong memory from 1964. The, the underbelly of Swiss culture. Uh, Milena, did you have uh, a I just have a very simple question, uh, more in relationship to your paintings. Because when we talk about your work, we very often talk about installation record breakings and so on. And recently I saw an amazing show of paintings. And these were certainly not about destruction, but an energy of music was certainly coming through them. So could you talk about these paintings? Well, Picasso said, <laughs> no, um, yeah, I think I surprised quite a few with, with these paintings because I, I, you know, I'm not uh, really a painter. Uh, I've, I've, uh, I've managed to go through art school without never taking one painting class, which I thought, I was always proud of that. Um, but, um, no, I was I was interested. You know, uh, painting is is sort of like this 
indestructible <laughs> medium that artists keep coming back to. And, uh, and I wanted to make uh, work that, in, that were critical of painting and um, were about re revealing an, an aspect of the process of painting, which was like a, a sonic process of like listening to what happens when you paint. And um, um, so this idea of, of referencing uh, abstract expressionism um, was a way to introduce this, this notion of sound in, in painting. So um, for the people who haven't seen the show, uh, I, I use a lot of uh, comic book onomatopoeias uh, that had watery kind of sounds like pluff and splash and uh, and um, used these, uh, printed these in silkscreen uh, on top of uh, painted backgrounds and a lot of the gestural painting, kind of action painting, um, was um, um, given a, a soundtrack in a way, you know, kind of sort of amplified. Um, and uh, but I, I've, I've, I mean, it came out of, of uh, a, a body of work that I've, I've done since uh, the uh, since the 80s, uh, looking at uh, onomatopoeias, how 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 sound is um, expressed visually, and I found that uh, these words, uh, these. Uh, onomatopoeias are uh, m more like um, images than they are words in a strange way. They, they're ambiguous uh, signs that are as much image as they are words. And, um, you know, how do you express sound in uh, a silent medium like uh, comics or, or like painting? Um, is there one more question? Or? Uh, I, I, I think we've had a good discussion, yeah. Christian. Um, thank all of you for coming. Thanks, Christian, for a great conversation. Thanks. Thank you, Russell. Thank you.